workers. Think about what this means to Florida, to Georgia, to Alabama, to the Carolinas, to the underbelly of, of the Gulf that we have there. Our states need to have teams that are ready to go in with mobile communications to set those things up first, fast, quickly, and plug into the space-based information backbone of this nation so that we can coordinate and move uh, rescue recovery assets at the quickest possible time. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello again, Downlink listeners. We've got two meaty and divisive subjects in the queue. First up is the U.S. Department of Defense Office of the Inspector General's report on whether the 2021 decision to locate Space Command in Huntsville, Alabama was made lawfully and adhered to policy. At issue is whether the then U.S. President, Donald Trump, was rewarding Alabama voters for supporting his failed re-election campaign, while at the same time punishing Colorado and perhaps even New Mexico voters for casting their ballots for the current Biden administration. And what has made that basing decision even more contentious or even unseemly is the fact that the former president gave an interview to an Alabama media outlet saying as much. The Government Accountability Office and the Department of Defense Inspector General launched investigations. The GAO report is still in the works, and the Inspector General's report does not specifically address whether politics may have played a role in the decision. And the second trigger issue that prompted think tankers to tweet out one-liners is actually bipartisan. This week, California Senator Dianne Feinstein, a senior Democrat, and Republican Senator Marco Rubio introduced the Space National Guard Establishment Act. They've already got 10 other senators on board. The problem here is that the Biden administration does not support it. To discuss these issues, we're going to hear from Chris Stone and Peter Gerritsen. You've heard them before. Both of them are space and defense think tank policy wonks and book authors and much more. And we've got Coyote Smith, a space power expert at the Air Command and Staff College at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama. Here's our discussion. Hi again, Chris, Peter, and Coyote. It's great to have you all back. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Before we dive in, let's get a refresher introduction. Coyote, as this is just your second time, why not go first? Oh, okay. Thank you. I'm, I'm a retired colonel from the Air Force, having spent 30 years in various flying missile space, uh, strategic planning, and academic assignments. Presently, I'm a professor at the School of Advanced, excuse me, at the uh, Air Command and Staff College, where I teach in the Schreiber Space Scholars Concentration in the Department of Space Power at beautiful Maxwell Air Force Base in glorious Montgomery, Alabama. Chris and Peter, you two are regulars, but for new listeners, introduce yourselves. And Chris, why don't you go first? Sure. I'm Christopher Stone. I am the Senior Fellow for Space Studies at the Mitchell Institute's Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence. We are based out of Washington, D.C., and uh, I am a former uh, political appointee in space policy in the Pentagon. I've worked in various other D.C. space-related policy and strategy roles. 
And I've also served in uh, active duty reserve and National Guard space assignments and operations. So I'm very much excited to be back. And Peter, you're calling from somewhere. So in addition to introducing yourself, where are you? I am on my way uh, back to my home in Alabama. And uh, I'm a senior fellow in defense studies at the American Foreign Policy Council, co-director of their space strategy program. And uh, I am the co-director of the uh, space policy initiatives, as well as the host of the space strategy podcast and the co-author of the book Scramble for the Skies. Okay, then let's start with the biggest bombshell. Colonel Mustard was not found in the library putting a knife into Colorado's Space Command HQ basing dreams. The Department of Defense Office of the Inspector General, which is often called the OIG or IG, found that when the U.S. Air Force chose to locate U.S. Space Command in Alabama, it complied with federal law and DOD policy and that the process was reasonable. Chris, you are in Washington, D.C., and therefore you're closest to the Hill. Can you give a brief history of this billion and a half dollar, probably more, tug of war between Colorado and Alabama over this combatant command? Sure. Well, uh, first things first, um, in the United States, there are two different um, military organizations that sometimes get confused. One of them is the U.S. Space Force, which is a military service branch. That is, um, its mission is to organize, train, and equip space forces for uh, for military purposes. And then there's U.S. Space Command, which is a combatant command, which in the U.S. system is the organizations that conduct the military operations. So if a war breaks out, uh, the combatant commanders are the ones that are responsible for executing those operational war plans. And so with regard to this, um, this started about the same time that the U.S. Space Force was founded. The U.S. Space Command was reestablished around the same amount of time, August 2019. And around that same time, they they had a sort of a disaggregated approach where pieces of, of what became Space Command were still based in different parts of the country uh, since it used to be fall under U.S. Strategic Command. And so it became imperative that the new combatant command, U.S. Space Command, have a home of its own. And so the Department of the Air Force, which is responsible for um, the, the space portfolio, was asked to provide the basing uh, analysis of where U.S. Space Command should be. And so over a period of a, a couple different times, there was two different cycles that this happened. The first cycle of basing where they send teams out to various locations that are being considered, you know, Colorado was one, Redstone Arsenal Alabama was another, and there was a few others that, that didn't, you know, meet the, the standards, I guess. And so the, the first time was in a congressional uh, election season. And so because of that congressional and pre then later presidential election season, they decided that they would stop the process, even though they were toward the end of it the first time around, and start over again so that there wasn't any perception of political you know, showmanship or anything of that sort. So as a result, they put it on pause. After the election, they started it back up again, redid the entire process from scratch to where the Secretary of the Air Force then eventually came to propose in the report that U.S. Space Command should be based in Alabama. Several reasons for that was um, just because there, there are a lot of different reasons. There's a whole list that the OIG report talks about. But there was one thing that, that, that did come up in discussions, um, and that was, you know, you got to be fair of where you place 
large military command headquarters because this is something that's going to be there for a while. It's going to have some economic impact. It's going to, you know, draw people to work in, in whatever area that's going to be. And so, of course, there's going to be some political sensitivity to it. Um, but with regard to Redstone Arsenal, there was a, there's a lot of land there. There's a lot of room to grow. It's close to a lot of space facilities. United Launch Alliance has some facilities there. There's some NASA facilities, Marshall Space Flight Center. It's just It's a lot of really good locations. And Alabama, unlike some states like Florida or Colorado that both already have two combatant commands, um, really didn't need to have another combatant command there. So to be fair, that was one of the reasons they were looking at is, is find a state that has space uh, expertise and, and places to build, and you've got Redstone Arsenal. So all these arguments from Colorado, I mean, Colorado has kind of been the Mecca space for a while, but a lot of these arguments are mostly, you know, political based. So in my opinion, they did everything they could to keep it apolitical, as apolitical as possible. But, you know, people who are not going to be happy with it are going to always try to find reasons about why you know, the decision had issues or whatever, because they didn't get what they wanted. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing here. So what do you guys think about the report? Peter, why don't you start? Well, to me, it gives uh, confidence that at least the Air Force tried very hard to follow an impartial procedure. And it certainly seems to undermine the claims that uh, it was an unjustified uh, decision to initially attempt to locate it in Alabama. So I'm very glad to see that uh, that it does appear to have been the highest scoring of the several places. I think Colorado wasn't even the, the second. Uh, so it, I think it gives a lot of confidence to the announced decision. Oh, well, perhaps this is just because I'm a journalist, but I'm bothered by the redactions in this report. You know, the Sharpie was used to cover how Alabama, Colorado, and other states like New Mexico, et cetera, measured up against each other. And the security classification was clearly unclassified. You know, that's got to make some of those stakeholders who've lost out wonder, no? I mean, what do you guys think? Coyote? Well, thank you. I, one of the things that stands out in my mind is the fact that we have co-located so much of our national space infrastructure in a very small valley in Colorado Springs. And I want to see a greater dispersion of those key centers of space around our nation. Uh, for a number of different reasons. Pete mentioned the economic incentive, the benefits there. Uh, from a military mind, I don't want to have all of my eggs in one easy to hit basket. By scattering out those commands, we gain some elements of necessary redundancy, which is not waste. That's not uh, uh, counterproductive. Having some degree of overlap between military organizations is what allows them to succeed when crisis happens. I think I'll, I'll also jump in and just add from a standpoint of the redactions, I'm not sure why they were redacted. Well, I'll just give a, an educated guess. One of the things in order to ensure a fair process is to make sure that, you know, congressional delegations or other people that are trying to ad advance their cause don't have the inside information on how decisions are made so that it's a fair and, in, and as impartial as possible. If, if one state were to find out more than they need to about the process of how the basing process is done, um, then that could probably create some problems. And then, you know, arguments of favoritism or things of that sort. And then you'll end up in a mess where you never get a decision because people are constantly arguing like you see with appeals of contracts and things of that sort. So 
I wouldn't be surprised if that's part of the reason why it was redacted. I'm not sure it was anything nefarious. Um, and I think, you know, that I think that's that has to be at least partly in my mind why you might see some redactions on on the why. Yeah, it's interesting that you say it that way because I think the one of the news were, stories. Well, hang on, just you know, one of the things or the things that were being redacted weren't so much what was being evaluated in the sense of you know, the, you know, is, does it have good childcare? Does it have a good education system? How about the location? Does it have enough parking? But what I found was that you couldn't really see how the different states, you know, really compared with each other. And I don't, I think that this were probably more like, you know, tick boxes or, or numbers within the addition of math. And I, I thought that that would have given a bit of transparency, especially to those business organizations that would like to, you know, benefit from the largesse of having something that's a billion plus dollars, you know, going to a certain locality, you know, whether they, you know, win it or lose it, but that they actually understand why and understanding those things could actually help the local community improve themselves for, you know, perhaps another round for another basing for something else in the future. No? Well, I mean, I think that's possible, but that I think I think what you pointed out was something that they're trying to avoid. And I'm just again, just just an educated guess that you know if they if they know how to posture themselves better than another location, then that puts the other locations at a disadvantage. And so while it may seem like it's not being transparent, I think in some ways this is probably for the best. Where they every 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 time that they do a decision like this, they send out what they're looking for. And then people in the Congress or whoever will say, hey, you need to consider Florida or you need to consider Vandenberg or you need to consider Colorado or Alabama. And then they put the list together and then they send out their teams and then they do their due diligence. So it's not like they're not getting any information. Um, but I think once you do the decision making, I think it's good to kind of keep some of that behind closed doors just so that people don't get a leg up and then all of a sudden you know, Florida or Alabama or somebody in future decisions ends up constantly winning because they know how to stack the deck better. But we'll see. <laughs> we'll see if we learn more. And Peter, I cut you off. I'm sorry. So the point I was going to make was that at least one news story had alleged that some of the additions were sort of names of currently serving generals who had, uh, for the decision memo, recommended against what the numerical uh, outcome had been based on their professional military judgment, and I'm sure that they, uh, you know, that the authors felt that that could harm their standing, you know, with the political constituencies of the various states, and so I think that was an attempt to be protective against, to allow for candid uh, professional military advice. So doesn't this clear the way then for the Air Force to put the Space Command in Huntsville, and, and how long would that actually take to build? Coyote? You know, that's a good guess. I imagine it would take probably two years, but I'm shooting from the hip on that. Uh, it's going to be uh, kind of a, a, we know what needs to get done. We just need to build the facility in order to move the people there to get it all set up. There's going to be an overlap. There, there always is an overlap where you'll have operations in the original location as you're starting to stand up operations in the new location. And eventually there'll be a drop-off date and everything will be up and operating wherever they locate the new space command. You know, when it comes to the redactions, the thought went through my mind, maybe they just redacted the profanity. <laughs> That's possible, I guess. 
I, I will say the coyote is right. It's about two to three years typically. And part of that is not so much because of a desire to be slow. It's because of the legislative process for military construction funding usually takes a couple of years to get, you know, in this in the system for the budget because you have to change some priorities around. You have to sell it to the Congress. You have to do a bunch of uh, jumping through hoops and things of that sort, environmental impact studies, all sorts of stuff. And even though Alabama's, you know, has a lot of space there, no pun intended, at Redstone Arsenal for building, um, that they'll still have to follow all those rules just like anybody else would. So it'll, it'll, take, it'll take more time. And I might add that one of the things that I think it was uh, someone in the Colorado delegation that had written that, you know, hey, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to slow down full operational capability of the combatant command. And to my, my thought in response to that is, no, <laughs> it's an organization. The thing that makes it effective is, is not that it has a building somewhere, is that it has the weapon systems and the authorities capable of doing its mission wherever it is. So just because they have this full operational capability thing, which just judges where they are as an organization, doesn't mean that in a operational sense, it's more speaking from an organizational perspective. And so I don't, I don't buy that argument. It's interesting because that was exactly the next question I was going to ask you, uh, Peter Coyote. I, do you agree with that? That this this move really does not affect operational capability. So uh, you know, I will say that you know, it's a in my view, it's the question of building it right for the long term and pay me now versus pay me later. I'm sure that part of what went into the best military advice of some of the senior uh, generals who argued for Colorado was exactly that, that they thought that, you know, they had all the, uh, you know, they had the facility, they had all the classified lines, you know, running into a place that might make it quicker for them to do that. But I think, you know, I'm more persuaded, you know, that we need to be building this for the long term. And I'm, you know, with Coyote that you can move in a partial ops in one place or another. And the true utility of something like U.S. Space Command isn't just this year when, you know, Ukraine is going on. It's going to be for decades ahead and picking the right place that's going to offer the maximum advantage to the Department of Defense and its members for where they're stationed for low cost, for childcare, for all those reasons. You know, it's best to accept a little bit of pain now in order to have the the maximum best long-term effect. Coyote, you on board with that? Yeah, I do agree with Peter who agreed with me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's move on to the next, dare I say it, triggering subject, the Space Force National Guard. This week, Senator Dianne Feinstein of California and Senator Marco Rubio of Florida introduced the Space National Guard Establishment Act on Wednesday. And they got more than 10 senators to sign on as co-sponsors. Now, this is perhaps one of the messier parts of standing up the United States Space Force. But let's see if I frame this correctly. And guys, I know you'll jump in if I get this wrong. Space Force is new. And Space Force wants to attract the best space and technology talent available. Check. Space Force is competing against the likes of SpaceX and Blue Origin and Axiom Space, as well as others, for this human capital. Check again. 
many technically savvy civilians and active duty personnel looking to join the private sector want to use their highly technical space skills to serve their country part-time. Check. So what's the problem? Is this legislation the solution? Coyote, you start. I am so happy to see this. The one word that makes me happiest in all of this is bipartisan. This is wonderful. Uh, this is one of the things that space does, unlike virtually any other topic, is it unites people uh, to, to do great things and, and to do wonderful things for our nation, for our allies, and for the world. And so I'd like to really compliment uh, our members of the Senate who work together and put down their differences and are cooperating to try to do the right thing. The Space National Guard, in my humble opinion, is the right thing to do. We have so many members from the old Air National Guard who support space units. And it's weird to have the active duty Space Force units be augmented by people that have Air Force on their name tags. I mean, they're just a couple of different systems that uh, we already have a, a, some distinct cultural differences evolving. And I think this is going to be good to put uh, space National Guard units in more states as those units become practical. We're not talking about going out busting the bank and doing things imprudently or pushing things along to the states before they're ready. But this is a type of thing that gives us growth potential and growth opportunity with the type of talent that we can recruit to part-time warriors who can have civilian jobs in those big companies with the big names that have the big ideas and the big credentials. And they can come work for us a weekend a month. And they can come do a couple of weeks with us in the summertime. And they have the choice of going, coming back on active duty with the Space Force at some point. Now, uh, the other thing about the Space National Guard that excites me is this brings some other titles under the US code uh, for us to operate under. For example, active duty military personnel, such as in the Space Force, operate under Title 10. Under Title 10, that's where the use of lethal and destructive force is authorized when so ordered by the National Command Authority. That's not all the space does. And that's why we need additional opportunities and authorizations under different codes uh, of the um, US system of codes. For example, guardsmen will come in under Title 32, which gives them uh, instant access to civilian leadership. And through civilian leadership, they can be tied to the Department of Homeland Security. And in certain circumstances, they can operate in a law enforcement manner. Now, why would I, well, you need law enforcement in space? Well, right now, what that would look like is you would have a space national guardsman on the operations floor in wherever we're operating these satellites. And if an anomaly happens on orbit, meaning we don't know what's really going on, something is happening to a satellite. It might be a natural phenomenon. It might be a malfunction on that satellite, or it might be a hostile attack. We will have somebody there who is duly deputized as a law enforcement agent that can hit record and can actually capture what is happening. And because of their deputization, they would be able to move that with the right chains of evidence to a court where a remedy hopefully could be found. Now, of course, that Title 32 would also involve Title 18 of law enforcement. And those are the types of things that uh, uh, people who crawl their way up to become mid-level bureaucrats can worry about later. <laughs> okay, but what happened to the idea of part-time guardians or a Space Force Reserve? I mean, Chris, you've been following this really closely. Yeah. Uh, before I get into that, let me just mention that the law enforcement idea that Coyote brought out is one that has not really been thought of or explored in the National Guard area. 
right now it's just uh, state active duty, Title 32 or Title 10, uh, with some people operating closely to Title 50, which is the intelligence uh, community titles. But but what happened was is there, the, the Space Force is, this is a complicated issue, um, shouldn't be, but it is. And it goes back to when the Space Force was created in 2019, 2020 timeframe, that um, the Air Force, the Army, you know, they, they have this, what they call a total force construct, where they have an active reserve and a, and a guard component. There, so there's three different components. And each of them have their own reason for being. The, in the space world, as Coyote mentioned accurately, that there is an Air National Guard space units, and they're in seven states and one U.S. territory. And as a result of that, they, they comprise over 60% or at least 60% of the Space Force's total warfighting capacity. And the fact that the Air National Guard is under the Air Force and not under the Space Force makes it very, very difficult for money and training and other dollars and things to pass back and forth between these units and the Space Force command structure. And as a result of that, <clears throat> they've had to operate under this big tapestry of MOUs and MOAs and other things that are just a real have created some serious problems with, with, with deployable units, things of that sort. And so the, the single component option is what they're pushing for, the administration is pushing for, which is similar to an Australian model where you have no guard, no reserve, but you have a part-time and a full-time membership. The thing is, is that the part-time membership is similar to what an IMA would be or an individual mobilization augmentee, where a person can, can be assigned and attached to different units. Unlike the reserve now, where they have a space wing and a space units, all those would go away in this construct, and basically it would be totally absorbed into the Space Force service. Um, the guard would also, the, the equipment would be absorbed if there was no guard, as the administration is seeking, um, but all the billets, the people, would not travel with them. So the Air Force would then have to get a huge bill to build military construction for new bases to put the equipment that they've taken away from the guard. And they're going to have to find a way to train uh, and gain the experience that these people in the guard already have, which some of them have, you know, anywhere from eight to 15 years of experience in these operational systems. And as a result of that, it's going to take at least eight to 10 years to replace that level of experience, if that is the case, plus costs a lot more than just establishing it. So everything is in place um, to, to turn it on. It's just a matter of doing it. And the fact that the, that the Senate um, is doing that and has 10 folks already signed on is great. The other bit I'll add is that the language in this bill is very similar, if not exactly, the House language that was proposed in last year's NDAA cycle. And the point of that is, is while these people are appropriators and not authorizers, the hope is that one of the co-sponsors will take that into the Armed Services Committee, attach it during amendments process during markup, and attach it to the Senate version of the NDAA. So when the House version comes over, that won't be an area of dispute that the conference people have to deal with, and therefore it increases the chances of success for the Space Guard to be a, an approved component in law. So and with, so that plus the appropriators already supporting it, Feinstein being the, the chair, that's a pretty good deal. And I think that's, that's probably the closest we've seen to having a bipartisan support for the Guard, um, but also bicameral support so far. So we'll see if it holds. Um, the administration is dead set against it, and they've already been asking the Space Force, as was as was mentioned in a Senate hearing recently, uh, to start planning to suck all the all the equipment back into the Space Force with nobody to really to operate it in two years. So we'll see what happens, but I'm I'm looking things are looking up. I've 
also seen that Air Force Magazine is reporting that the White House backs creating an Air and Space Force National Guard instead of a separate space organization. You know, why not just do that or start with that before standing up uh, separate space units? And I'm going to ask Peter to start. And of course, I know you guys have a view, so jump in at any time. Well, you know, I, I think we've already seen already that this halfway house of having the Space Force under the Department of the Air Force is a train wreck of a mistake that it absolutely needs to become its own department. And you can delay doing the right thing, of course, by you know trying to you know rename something as, a, as an Air and Space Force that at least honors that. But you still have the fundamental problem that you know those members need to be Space Force members and they need to be attached to the service that they are going to be working with and that service needs to feel ownership over them. And it seems to me is, you know, the, the clear intent of building the Space Force was to create it, at, you know, ultimately as a separate department, as a separate service. And so, you know, to me, it makes sense to, to do this right now. In fact, one of the powerful reasons why I support the Guard is not only because the Guard has proven so valuable with the other services, but because the Guard rightly brings with it a significant amount of political clout and power in Congress that will make it increasingly difficult for those who want to, sh to who are opposed to Space Force independence and want to shove it back into the Air Force as just an Air Force Space Command. So, you know, one of the benefits of having a Space Guard is that it will be protective of an independent Space Force in the long term. I can't believe Coyote's being quiet on this. <laughs> I'm monitoring my blood pressure. Um, yeah, airmen uh, have, yeah, uh, first of all, let me say that I'm going to speak my own opinion. I'm not the official opinion of Air University or of the Department of the Air Force, obviously, but the opinion I express ought to be theirs as well. Um, and here's why. Airmen fought like cats and dogs to get out from underneath the army because they realized due to just normal bureaucratic organizational politics, they were not gonna be able to advance air power underneath the army because the army always had a higher set of priorities for something traditionally army related than the advancement of air power. And the army was also quite aware that if the development of the long range bomber and the interdiction platforms took place, it would reduce the overall value and the numbers that they'd be able to get from Congress of artillery tubes and tanks, et cetera. And we're having the same phenomenon happening in space. And it's been happening now for 70 years. As long as we are under the Department of the Air Force, the primary mission of that department will be air power. You can change the name all you want, but given the fact that it is the Air Force, you're not going to be able to advance space power much further. Uh, it will probably concern your, your listeners to know that our satellites are sitting up there relatively undefended, and we have no plans to defend commercial satellites. Oftentimes, we lease those capabilities for various services, and it's, it's hugely problematic for us to be stuck in an Air Force bureaucracy that takes care of itself first because there's always a contingency someplace and uh, the bill should not have to be paid for by space. Just like the Air Force argued 
that the cost for air power should not be compromised by the Army's need to take care of land power first. Just to echo on that, I, I really think you've seen how this has been set in motion uh, by the current Secretary of the Air Force. I think his comments, uh, and you can see Chairman Cooper's reaction to those comments about keeping the Space Force tethered, dissuading it from thinking too independently, has inevitably set uh, the course for the, the departmental independence. I, I don't see any recoverable way that the Space Force is not going to be heading for its own department after what has transpired in the last couple of months. And by the way, that, that comments that, chair, that the uh, Chairman of Strategic Forces Subcommittee said that, that you know, was mentioned is a Mitchell Institute Space Power Forum that happened earlier this week. So uh, if and, you're interested Chris, in that, check it out. <laughs> and Chris, um, just to wet everyone's whistle a bit more, uh, tell us, what did Representative Cooper actually say? Well, the question was something to the effect of what's your opinion of the current status of the Space Force as it is, you know, two years old. Um, and he, his, his position was that he thought that the, the speech at Space Symposium of Secretary Kendall was concerning to him because he thinks that the Space Force uh, should be bold and tough and leaning forward and, and that you can't go for enough, further enough forward. And what he said he heard was more of the uh, enablement and support role, um, less than the offense and defensive roles. Now, other people have different perspectives. Some people think that he mentioned offensive stuff early on, but a lot of folks in the room heard the ending, which was more of the, you know, it's time to focus on what we need to do now and that stuff can happen later, which, as I mentioned, I think in an earlier uh, podcast with you, that's part of the reason why some of the guardians in the service are quietly joking things such as Semper Someday and things of that sort. So, uh, but that's, that's what, that was his position. He wants to see them become a, a war fighting service as it's stated in title 10. Um, and I think that's definitely something a lot of people would like to see. So here's my last question, gentlemen, and, you know, again, jump right in. This is going to make you all squirrely and it's on purpose, but if a National Guard is the right way to go, how do you explain to a person, and I saw this today on Twitter, who says, quote, why would a governor ever need a satellite operator to support their state or local issues, unquote? Who wants to go first? I, I will jump in on that. Living here in Alabama, we absolutely need space trained, space National Guardsmen when we have natural disasters. Think about what this means to Florida, to Georgia, to Alabama, to the Carolinas, to the underbelly of, of the Gulf that we have there. Our states need to have teams that are ready to go in with mobile communications to set those things up first, fast, quickly, it plug into the space-based information backbone of this nation so that we can coordinate and move uh, rescue and recovery assets at the quickest possible time. Now, that's not to say that it isn't getting done now, but typically it's being done with ground-based HF radios and those types of things are wonderful, but our space systems are up there. And we need to get those types of space terminals out there, uh, much like what the Ukrainians have been able to demonstrate, their ability to coordinate massive things very quickly with a full information backbone of space. That's what a Space National Guard means to states here. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll just I'll throw something in. So I'm actually I actually have experience doing space in the National Guard, as I mentioned. And while a lot of people, I'll say two things. First, there is the domestic mission piece that Coyote mentioned. That is one area that a lot of people in a lot of states are not used to thinking about because it's just something they've just either been used to having, um, but they just didn't realize they had access to. So here's a case in point. Um, one of the states I was affiliated with a few years ago was doing a major exercise regarding an earthquake situation. And this state just happens to have every single possible you know, natural or, or you know, man-made disaster potential you could think of, nuclear power plants, rivers, earthquake fault lines, tornadoes, everything. And so we were doing an exercise planning and they wanted to bring all these expensive airplanes in to do damage assessment. And in the, in the United States, that's called incident awareness and assessment. And so instead of bringing all these big airplanes, I raised my hand and I said, hey, why don't we use overhead imagery? And they're like, you can do that? I'm like, yeah. So we, I told them how we can get, you know, we can use our, res our air resources and land resources way more efficiently, especially if you're going to be in a complex catastrophe where you may not have access to aviation fuel or other fuel that you'll be able to use your, your air assets more judiciously. And a second theme just having a space knowledgeable person is helpful to leadership in the state because it helps them understand when there's solar, when there's space weather issues that could impact navigational aids on the airplanes and the ground vehicles, whether it had, it also impacts HF radios, as Coyote mentioned, and impacts satellite communication like Iridium phones, which most states have access to. And then the National Guard has their own, uh, what's called a JISC system, which is based off of Inmarsat and other things like that for video and secure communication for disasters such as this. Now, most people are just used to them being a comm asset or whatever, but when you have someone that actually can speak space and explain why is your Iridium phones not working, why is, you know, space weather impacting this, that, and the other, that's a good thing. And these generals that I talked with were just amazed that that was possible. Finally, I'll just, I'll mention um, from a security standpoint also, while people ask that question, why does a governor need space? The one thing that they don't understand is, is, and this kind of gets back to the law enforcement piece that Coyote mentioned, the Guard does have law enforcement activity. Space people typically haven't done much of that, at least in a direct way so far. But one thing that has been proven is that um, there have been people who use GPS jammers to steal such things as pharmaceuticals in convoys, things of that sort. That has been reported in the press. And so you can have millions of dollars worth of pharmaceuticals potentially even strategic stockpiles in situations like a pandemic. And I actually was participating in a pandemic planning situation back in 2015, which ended up being leveraged. Unfortunately, the space piece hasn't really ever been fully matured uh, just because of funding and resources and people not really sure about it. So there's a lot of potential to having a space guard, but that's one reason you would. There is a security part for the state that's necessary to that. Um, whether people want to believe it or not. So I would just say this is something that's, I think, a benefit. Uh, it's also a cost-effective measure for having a search to war capacity. And then finally, uh, I'll mention that um, if you look at it constitutionally speaking, you know, we have checks and balances in our political spheres, states, federal, you have, you know, checks and balances within the federal government. Well, if you look at the, at the Constitution, it specifically mentions the militia clause, and that is on purpose because you want to have checks and balances of a military power, not just of political power. And so that's why you see the states have been engaged with a militia system, which later became the National Guard in the early 20th century, as the main search to war force for the United States to keep the American populace engaged in their national security. And so if you're going to have a space force or an air force or an army, 
it behooves you to keep the public who are paying the bill for that engaged and supportive. Yeah, I, I'd like to build on that because I think there are a lot of important points. So, you know, you can always ask the question, you know, why does a governor need fighters or bombers or any military capability? A lot of that is specifically to be the mobilization for war that you don't necessarily need at all times. And I think in many ways, you know, the argument for the guard, for, for the space guard and its integration with the state is a lot stronger, that there's typically a very strong relationship between the guard and your emergency management uh, associations. Having, you know, space aware folks at the state level is very important because of the very broad potentials for economic development as well, you know, that is likely very underexplored at this time. And then, you know, uh, Laura, you had mentioned right at the beginning, you know, that there are folks who are, you know, because of their career choices or because of their family homesteading needs or because of their ability to provide very long-term expertise, uh, we can just make better use of the, that talent when they have a different career path where they're able to homestead and, and maintain long-term expertise tied to a state, tied to you know what could be very, very important uh, civilian careers that bring in you know, some of the best thinking from civilians. And then there's the last you know, diplomacy aspect in that we have in the Guard this state partnership program that allows us to build excellent long-standing relationships with partners overseas. And the types of space power that most states, domestic states, would use is actually much closer to what most states, you know, international states, particularly developing states, are going to be able to make use of. How do they bring in imagery? How do they think about SATCOM? How do they optimize uh, precision navigation and timing? And so the possibility of having a space, you know, state partnership program that is able to grow space-mindedness in our allies that are not space-faring themselves is another tremendous asset that can come by, by having the guard there. So I, I think having you know, smart space aware advisors advising and providing capabilities into the states is going to be a net economic boom for the nation and will help make sure that we are bringing in the, the broadest talent base of folks into the space force with the newest and best ideas that we might not just get from young folks straight out of college. And by the way, that partnership activity is happening with states. My own um, guard side is and has been engaged with a South American country, and that is that has a lot of benefit in countering things like the Belt and Road Initiative, the Space Silk Road, and things of that sort. Um, that re is reaching out into even our own hemisphere. So it's not just something in the Indo-Pacific. This is something that reaches has re had now has legs across pretty much all the continents. Gentlemen, thank you so much for giving me your time. No problem. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you, Laura. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.